We are in the book of Colossians as we continue our study, and you have no place to go for a while. It is raining. If you're in the worship center, it is raining. Shocker. Okay. Colossians 2, or 4, verses 2 to 4, hear the word of the Lord. It says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, I ought to speak with clarity. I ought to to make this gospel clear. That's his prayer. He's in prison. He's facing imminent death, and his prayer is, may I make the gospel clear, intelligible, understandable. And so if you look at the Christian faith as a bullseye with outer rings and middle rings and then the bullseye, with the outer rings being tertiary issues that you know, we can discuss, not a big deal. The secondary ring, secondary issues that we may feel passionate about, but the inner ring are issues upon which we will take our stand and shed our life's blood. The innermost part of the inner ring is the character of God, triune in glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal in nature. But, but right next to the definition of the character of God and the fullness of Christ is understanding how we are made right in the presence of this holy, pure, almighty, eternal God through the work of Christ on the cross. And that's why Paul in prison could ask for a thousand things to pray for, but he says this, this as I am in prison, pray that I will make the gospel plain, understandable. May I preach Christ with clarity. In Ephesians chapter 6, he has the same prayer once again from prison. He says this, verses 19 and 20. He says, pray that, that for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So boldness, clarity, because the nature of the gospel is at stake. There's an article in Newsweek magazine eight years ago by one of the writers named Lisa Miller. It was on religion in America. And she wrote this. The title of the article is, We Are All Hindus Now. Hindus. She says, a recent poll shows that conceptually, at least, we are slowly becoming more like Hindus and less like traditional Christians in the way we think about God, ourselves, each other, and eternity. So, for example, in Hinduism, Hinduism says that there are many paths to God, that there's the Islamic path through the Quran and the prophet Muhammad, and there, there's the Jesus way, and there's this way and that way, but all paths are equally valid. She says none is better than the other. All are equal, which is not what traditional Christians have been taught. Americans are no longer buying what the Christian faith says, she says. According to a 2008 Pew survey, 65% of Americans believe that, quote, many religions can lead to eternal life. Many religions. 
including, listen, 37% of evangelicals, that's us, people that claim they believe the gospel, 37%, many religions. Let me just stop and say this. Uh, you, you can go to the River Ganges in India and have a holy bath. That doesn't make you right with God. You can go on a holy trip to Mecca with the Islamic people. That doesn't make you right with God. You can go to Buddhist shrines all over Thailand, Japan, and Nepal, and, and Bhutan. That doesn't make you right with God. The only thing that makes you right with God is found in the cross of Jesus, the bloody cross of Christ. So she said 30% of Americans call themselves no longer religious, but merely spiritual. Professor of Boston University's Stephen Prothero, who's written many articles, says that, that America is now nothing more than a divine della cafeteria of different mishmashes of religion. He says, even when it comes to reincarnation, here is another way Americans are becoming more like Hindus. 24% of Americans say they believe in reincarnation according to a 2008 Harris Poll survey. In other words, reincarnation means that you live, you live this way, and if you live bad in this present existence, you come back in a lower place, and you have to live life and make up for it. If you live good in this life, you come back in a higher manifestation, and you do that hundreds and maybe thousands of times until you're absorbed in the universe. Reincarnation. 34% of Americans, or 24% believe in reincarnation. And then she quotes Diana Eck from Harvard University who says, we can say that now religiously we don't really talk about the resurrection, we talk about life fulfillment. In other words, we are all becoming Hindus now. So I just, we, we've got to get the gospel right. You see, my heart, listen, my heart is spring-loaded and so is yours to, 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 to think that I've got to work hard to earn the favor of God. My heart is spring-loaded to compare myself to other people and really usually win, just be honest. You know, you may think, I, I am bad, but I'm not as bad as a person on the seat in front of me. Now, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as this person sitting behind me. And if you're with your spouse, you say, I'm bad, but I know I'm not as bad as a person sitting next to me. And so we compare ourselves, and usually, you know what I was usually. You win. In the game of comparison, I always win. My heart is spring-loaded to think these things. My heart is spring-loaded to think that, uh, well, this guy named R.C. Sproul, who died just a few months ago, a wonderful teacher of the Scripture. And, and R.C. years ago said, in America today, you know, historically we've believed in justification by faith. You're made right with God by faith in the finished work of Jesus. He said, in America today, we believe in justification by death. All you got to do to go to heaven is to die. And he, when he wrote that, I thought, man, uh, all of us, if you've been around very long and you've gone to many funerals, all of us have gone to a funeral where the speaker will rap with rhapsodic speech, say, you know, we know our dearly beloved is now in heaven, and he's playing, whatever, golf or I'm not sure they play golf in heaven, but that's beside the point. They, 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 he's, he's having a great time in heaven. And, um, and you kind of look around thinking, am I at the wrong funeral? Because you knew the guy. He never thought about the things of Christ. He never thought about eternity. He never went to church. And now he's, he's, he's there just by death. So you have to be, we have to continually rediscover the glory and goodness of the gospel. And so Paul says here, he says, pray that I would proclaim the mystery of Christ. 
a mystery is something that has been covered, but now is clearly laid bare before our eyes. In Matthew 13, one of the great statements in the Gospels, Jesus looks at his band of men and he says, I tell you, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. For I tell you that many righteous men of old longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. In other words, this is now kingdom come. Behold, I am Messiah King. In, Reve- in, in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 3, he says, the, the, the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ. The the mystery was covered. We were given signs and shadows and, and, and types through the sacrificial system. But in the fullness of time, God became a man born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. Behold, the mystery of Christ, the resurrected Savior. The mystery. He says in Colossians, he talks about the mystery in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. He says, he says the, the, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, we proclaim the mystery of Christ, now revealed. And so I want to just rehearse the gospel this morning. I'm going to make, just go through a four-step statement of the gospel. Number one, God is eternal holy, loving, and triune. There was never a time when he was not eternal God. This eternal God in in his mercy made man and woman in his image. Therefore, all people are worthy of respect and Christian love. All people have gifts. All people can bless their culture to a degree. But men and women are also all sinful. The Bible says that we've sinned that comes short of the glory of God. Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament, all we like sheep have gone astray. So we're sinful or we're twisted or we're curved. Uh, we, we, none of us can make our way in the presence of God. So the question is this, how do you cover your twistedness in order to be made right with God? And in the, in the Old Testament, the very first man and woman fell into sin and they were without clothes. But when they fell into sin, they realized that there was shame and exposure. And so they sewed together, the, the scripture says, fig leaves as a covering for their nakedness. And so God comes into the garden and he says, where are you, Adam? And he says, I'm here. He says, well, why are you hiding? Well, I want to cover my, 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 my sin. And in essence, the Lord says, fig leaves will not do. So in incredible mercy in chapter 3, God makes a covering of skins. He sheds the blood of animals to cover their shame. 
we believe, for signifying the fact that Messiah King would one day die on the cross and shed his blood for our sin. God says throughout history, fig leaves will not do. Thirdly, Christ, God's only Son, eternally God, mercifully came to rescue us from the guilt and punishment of sin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Heavenly Father, died in my place, and rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there is, um, a, a, this, this is a book on mere Christianity. I read it once a year at least. And there's a section that I think may be my favorite section where, where C.S. Lewis, who died one week before his 65th birthday in 1963, writes about Christ coming. And let me just read a couple of paragraphs. I think I can do this. So what has God done for us? I think he's spot on here. First of all, he has left us a conscience the sense of right and wrong. And all throughout history, there have been people trying, some very hard, to obey it. But none of them ever quite succeeded. Secondly, he sent the human race what I call good dreams. I mean those queer stories scattered all throughout the heathen religions about a God who dies and, and comes to life again and by his death has somehow given life to men. And thirdly, he selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their hearts the sort of God he was. And there was only one of him and that he cared about right conduct. And these people were Jews and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Well said. New paragraph. Then came the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. And he says, now, if you are in a pantheistic religion like Buddhism or Hinduism, that's no big deal because everything is God and God is everything. But if you are a Jew, and these were Jews, only the living God can claim to be God. There's only one God, and there are no gods before him. There's only one God, and you don't make a, an image of him. There's only one God, and you don't take his name in vain. So this was absolutely astounding. And so he says this, well, one part of the claim that tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often is that he claimed to forgive sins, any sin. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is a preposterous idea and really comical. We can all understand how a man can forgive offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what, we should, what should we make of a man himself unrobbed, untrodden upon, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? He says it is absolutely ridiculous unless he is God. And I think he's right. In the year 330, there's a man who wrote a little book uh, named uh, Arnobius. And Arnobius tried to share the gospel with, with, with Greek people, Gentiles. And he wrote, he wrote this in a book entitled Ancient Writers. He, he said, regarding the, the people who mocked him preaching the gospel, he said, my friends tell me the gods are not hostile to you because you worship the omnipotent God. 
but because you maintain that a mere man being born a human being and one who suffered the penalty of crucifixion, which even to the lowest of men is a disgraceful, horrific punishment, was God. And you believe that he still exists and you worship him in your daily prayers, close quote. So they, they, they couldn't believe that, first of all, that God became a man. And then to think that this almighty God, who is the creator of the universe, would allow himself to be crucified on a horrific cross, which is the lowest, most menial type of crucifixion, was beyond their comprehension. And, and we say, yeah, they're right. In fact, Paul says they're right in this regard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you know, when we stand up and we preach the cross, listen, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you're not a believer this morning, this story is just silly. It's folly. That's why the Holy Spirit has to open eyes. And he goes on and he says this. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Jesus crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ is the source of our life. God has made him to be our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's folly. And you think about it. The, the world, the, the disciples wanted a conquering hero to overthrow the Romans. A champion on a white horse. A, a powerful one. A, a general of might. And what they got was a suffering servant who loved the unlovable and touched the untouchable and said, you must receive the kingdom like a little child. See, what, what they were looking for and what I would, these are not the correct pictures for this week if you're in the, the sound booth. This is, these are last week's pictures. If you can change it, that'd be great. If not, that's fine. Y'all do such a good job. So let's, uh, anyway, what we're looking for is Thor. There you go. Thank you. You're with me. You know, I, he's my favorite character, Batman and Thor. It's a, it's a photo finish. You know, Thor is tall, ripped, has the hammer. That we wanted Thor to come in might and make it right. But what we get? A peripatetic rabbi who taught about suffering. And, and the world looks at it and says, it, it, it's folly. See, I like power. And power is appropriate. I, I was thinking that, I think it was 10 years ago, I went to a South Carolina football game. Football's only one month off. The anticipation is ramping up. I asked my wife yesterday, I said, can you believe it's one month till football starts? And she said, I can't wait. And if you know her, that was a absolutely untrue statement. Anyway. So I was at this football game. South Carolina, Kentucky came to town that year. Kentucky was ranked sixth in the nation. And the Gamecocks were 11th. And I was at the game. And, and uh, it was armed service day. So I'm standing there in a packed place. And, and South Carolina won. 
And right before the game, of course, they play the national anthem, and it's, it's very stir, stirring emotionally. And, and right as they finished singing the last line of the national anthem, I heard a rumbling to my left. It got louder and louder. And then two jets came over as, as they, they buzzed the stadium. And the stadium shook and people went crazy. And I thought, that's the sound of freedom. That power is sometimes glorious. But you transfer this to the understanding Christ, you'll never get the gospel. Jesus came in a manner of basic disregard. He hung out with people who were not always at all gifted, and he died a cruel death. And he could have snapped his fingers, and 2,000 divisions of angels would have turned the world upside down. But he had to be the sacrifice for sin to fulfill the promise so that we might walk into the kingdom of God. Behold the greatness of Christ. Jesus looks at his people in Matthew 11 and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and beat down by life, and I'll give you rest. See, the gospel is for people who are weary and heavy laden. They're just beat down. He says, how do you get rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm humble of heart and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I mean, that, that, that is so, as I'm gonna say in a few minutes, counterintuitive. If only he had said, come to me all you're trying to find more fulfillment and, 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 and power and I will give it to you. Let me be your life coach. And you'll find enrichment and social success and emotional health. But he didn't say that. Weary and heavy laden. People who realize every day, I've got to have Christ to do what I need to do. Fourthly, this gospel calls for a response, a response of repentance and faith. You place your faith in Christ. And as you do that, you have a repenting heart. And so I'm going to take a, just let me talk to you about this for a few minutes. Uh, there was a movement in the 1800s in Great Britain named Sandemanianism. And Sandemanianism was a, a, a thought among believers that the only thing that you needed to really be made right with God was a bare belief in conceptual truths. If you just believed that uh, God came in the flesh and died on the cross and rose victorious, you can be saved. And they, they, they didn't mention repentance. The Baptist faith and message, our confession of faith, says that repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. In other words, uh, when you come to faith in Christ, you come as a weary, heavy-laden person. And, and repentance is, is, an, is a sorrow for sin with an internal resolve to honor God. Okay? It's, it's, and, and repentance is supposed to be part of our lives as we, as we grow in Christ. So, but but, 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 but Sandemanianism was... was, was was anti-emotional. There's a man named Andrew Fuller who was a contemporary and friend of William Carey, the father of modern day missions. And Andrew Fuller said this, he said, if there is no repentance, there's no faith. Hear that? He says, faith without repentance is, is not genuine. He later said, you, you can have any 
intellectual assent to propositions. You can have a notional faith, but you cannot have saving faith without repentance, which again is, is, is sorrow over your sin with an internal resolve to do the right thing. And in this book I'm reading on, on Sandemanianism, they said, thankfully Sandemanianism died in the 1800s in England. I said, no, it didn't. It is alive and well. And it breaks my heart. I meet people all the time who say, yeah, I believe that Christ came. And yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. But it makes no difference to them. There's no difference. There's no passion. There's no energy. There's nothing. And, and I believe Romans 10, for example. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which means to believe things, yeah, Absolutely. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The heart in the Bible refers to the totality of your person. So, so if you believe in your heart Jesus rose from the dead, there's going to be a requisite response in your heart to him. We say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I was with a man this week and I was talking to him about his family. He's having some family issues and he's a wonderful young man and I said, are your parents believers? He said, well, I, said, I, don't, I don't know. He said, they, they, they rarely go to church. They never speak the name of Christ. They never read the Bible. I, I just don't, I, I, I don't know. And I thought, oh, man. I hope if kids, my, my kids are asked, is your old man a believer? They'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He stumbles and he falls and he's not always the right guy, but he's trusted Christ. And I think he wants to do the right thing and he's faithful. You see, the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. My fear is that people have filled out a card or gone to some class, but there's no heart, there's no energy, there's no life. Jesus gives life. First John chapter two. These are to me. This is such a clear, such a clear. First John chapter two. Listen, verse three to six says this, and this. But by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth. Is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know, and we may be sure that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. I mean, that's so clear to me. There's a statement in your worship guide from a guy named Wayne Grudem from a little book, this very readable, called and it was free grace theology, five ways it diminishes the gospel. Let me just read the paragraph. He says, I, I, do, I do not differ with some over the question of whether a true God, or excuse me, a true Christian can fall into a time of disobedience. But over the question of whether during that time the person should be assured that he or she will be eternally saved. Listen, prolonged and willful patterns of disobedience and explicit professions of unbelief in Christ give evidence that the person is in fact not saved. Now, one way I say it to people all the time is, you know, Christians fall into sin. There are people here, all of us, all of us fall into, we deal with sin, every one of us do. 
But, but, but a Christian, listen, a Christian doesn't stay in the sin. 1 John 2, 19, very clear. So I would just ask you, uh, have you responded in repentance and faith to who Jesus is? Let me talk about the counterintuitive gospel very quickly. So I talked about Thor, the power and the magic and the attractiveness. That's, that's what we like. See, the gospel is so counterintuitive. I think of John chapter 9. John chapter 9, excuse me, Luke chapter 9. Three of the disciples gone up on the mountain. They sing Jesus transfigured. Uh, Moses and Elijah comes down. They talk to Christ about his coming passion. And Christ countenance and his clothing becomes white as the snow and then a voice comes from heaven and says this is my beloved son listen to him it was a wild experience and they, they look up and they see Jesus only they go back down the mountain and they just just man they were must have been pumped I mean wow transfiguration boom they, they go down the mountain and Luke 9 says that that they see some people healed dramatically whom the disciples could not heal and then Jesus says right on the end of that, the, the, the tale of all that, he says that, that, that while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your heart. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, the cross is coming, guys. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them. They were afraid to ask him what he was saying. But you know what happened next? I mean, transfiguration, healing, the cross is coming, don't fully get it, but don't want to be the first to ask a dumb question. So they just, yeah, everybody acts like they knew what he was talking about. The next thing it says here is this. This is, to me, this is just, it's almost a Saturday night live stuff. An argument then arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, really? Imagine arguing with your friends about who's greatest in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it in by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The gospel is counterintuitive. Now, the gospel, second point. Karma versus grace. So karma is the belief that we get what we deserve. In other words, you work hard, you get this. Uh, karma is, of course, central to Eastern religions, but you hear people talk about karma today. You ask people, just ask your friends who aren't believers. Do you believe in karma? And they're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah. Karma, you get what you deserve. Grace is you get what you do not deserve because of the goodness of Christ. Can you show a couple of slides about karma real quick? Yeah. Dear karma, I have a list of people you missed. Okay. Next slide. That was pretty good. That's karma. It's going to come around. What goes around comes around. Um, example. We have this ministry called Families Count, and these are families who are going through a hard time. And we're so glad they're here. 
it's easy to look at people who are in a bad place and to say, well, they made bad decisions. Let me tell you something. I've made some really bad decisions, and so have you. And we forget about different people who walk through systemic issues in their families where there's hurt and need or in their background. Or God forbid that we ever look at someone with a patrician, arrogant spirit that says, man, if they'd only been as smart as we have been, they would not be there. That is from the pit of hell. I believe this. I believe every person here, really, if you're not a believer, I mean, if you're, if you're not a believer, you're still in America, and you still live in Charleston, in spite of the humidity. Every person here, especially believers, should stop every day and say, I do not deserve the grace of God. When I was blind and lost and dead in my sin, God spoke grace to my heart. I, I mean, it's not karma, folks. It is a grace. See, karma destroys compassion. See, if you really believe people get what they deserve, then you can walk by people and say, hey, they've made bad decisions. They deal with it. If you're a Hindu, listen, if you're a Hindu, you, you, you meet people and they're in the lower strata of the caste system, and, and you say, well, they just got to work hard and come back in a better place where I am. It kills compassion. Grace awakens compassion. Do you ever stop? I'll speak autobiographical. I think frequently, why did I get a mom and a dad who loved each other and taught me good stuff? I meet tons of people who didn't have good parents. I stop and say, why in the world did I go to a school that I never visited before I went there called the Citadel? And my best friend just happened to be an evangelical from Florence who preached the gospel to me in my freshman year. I came to understand the wonder of the cross of Jesus why? Listen, every time I, do, I did a wedding, it was a wonderful wedding yesterday. Every time I do a wedding, I realize people getting married are clueless. Aren't they? I mean, you're, these old folks are laughing because it's true. I mean, they're just getting married because they like the person, and if they're believers, they want to have sex, and then so they get, it's true, you know, don't, don't look at people weirdly, that's why we get married. And, and, but we're, we're clueless. And I think I was clueless when I got married 38 years ago and I, I hit the mother load. Tell her I said that. She's in the nursery now. <laughs> Tell her I said some other things that are really nice too. Why did God allow me to come here and be the pastor of this wonderful church? Really great people. Just, it's, 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 it's grace. It's grace. When I was growing up, I listened to a guy named Chris Christopherson. He had a horrible album with some songs on it. And one of the songs went, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the favors you've given me? Lord, help me, Jesus. That's all I remember. But it's true. It's, it's true. I, so, so we used to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. It's not karma, it's grace. See, that, that's why you, you read the New Testament, and you, you know what really ticks off the New Testament writers? People that aren't thankful. Thanksgiving is not an American holiday first. It's an apostolic holiday. 
You read throughout the epistle, time after time, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, because why? People of grace should be thankful. It's not grace. It's karma. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of quotes by a guy named Bono. Don't show the quote if I tell you. I'm going to read the pre. Bono, I asked one of our young, uh, younger staff guys, I said, is Bono still cool? And he said, no. So I'm sorry. I thought I was going to call somebody this cool. But if you don't know music, Bono is after Elvis and before Beyonce on the music timeline. So he's, he's been real popular from Ireland. And, but about five years ago, he was interviewed by a good friend who's an atheist. And, and I, I read this interview and I just went, man, this, this is incredible. I'm just going to read a couple of things. Bono says, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company and a relationship with people like me. He says, but the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. <laughs> you see, all the world religions, he says, are about karma. And yet, yet along comes this idea called grace to up in all of the you get what you deserve stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Amen. Show the first slide. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep trouble. Just to be honest with you, he didn't use the word trouble there. Okay, he used a different word, but it's Sunday morning and I'm among the brethren, so I can't use it. It's a synonym for trouble. Okay. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. It's good stuff. Next quote. Next slide. The proof. Yeah. Excuse me, the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took the sin on the sins of the world so that we put out, what we put out did not come back on us or to us, and, and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. I just thought, man, he lays it out. It's good stuff. Good stuff. It's grace. Now, there's a statement in the bulletin from the Westminster Shorter Catechism in his question 32, and it, it, this is what it says, and it's so good. It says, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? Effectually calling means God calls you unto himself, opens your eyes to see the gospel. So what, what benefits, here's the answer, they that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. It says, it says, they say, not only are you justified, which means you're declared righteous in the sight of God. Sins are wiped out. You're forgiven. But you're adopted. So you're not only by the cross Forgiven, but you're brought into the banquet hall and you sit at the family table. You're adopted. 
and you're sanctified. God's working on you by his Holy Spirit. And then he says, and there are several benefits which in this life either accompany or flow from. And I just thought several, I could list 15 benefits. I want to mention one. One. And that is this. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Christ, Christ has done it all for us. Romans 8, 1. No condemnation. No condemnation. Our greatest songs celebrate the glorious gospel. And can it be? It says this. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be? No condemnation. It makes you want to sing and dance and be happy. Or one of our more recent songs that I think will be very popular for decades by the Gettys. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No condemnation, church. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. It's Jesus Christ. No, no, listen, no condemnation. That's such good news. Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the reformer, died in 1546. Martin Luther had a friend named George Spalatin who made some bad moves as a pastor, gave some bad advice. And Spalatin and Luther had this correspondence. And Spalatin was going, I'm, I'm just a loser. I'm just a loser. I'm a loser as a pastor. And so Luther writes this letter. I'm sure he's part of it. I, I wish I could read the whole thing. It is so good. It is so good. That's what Luther says. Therefore, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. <laughs> you look around you. You're surrounded by real, great, hard-boiled sinners. Hmm. You, you must not, you must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid of imaginary or nominal or childish sins, no, no exclamation point. That would not be good for us. He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, damnable sins and iniquities. Yes, from even the very greatest and most shocking of sins. I love that. He is the Savior of real, great, damnable, shocking sins. We are the company of hard-boiled sinners who have seen the glory of the cross. Listen, as we speak the gospel, let us make it clear to people. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Christ. And there is a hell to avoid and a heaven to win, to gain only by the work of Jesus. Please hear me. 